Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome to Compass. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor. And as always, it is just my pleasure to have you with me here today. So, interesting fact. Did you know that when you meet someone, the first impression that you make of them is typically developed on average within the first seven seconds? And that means that most people will make a judgment on our intelligence, our trustworthiness, and honestly, just whether or not we're a good person. That judgment will be made within seven seconds of meeting us for the very first time. And things like eye contact, friendliness, uh, even how we smell are all factors that people use to make split-second decisions about other people. Let me give you a perfect example. Take the Easter Bunny. Now, he's not an easy guy to get to know because he only comes out one day a year. But for the most part, I think the Easter Bunny seems like a pretty good guy. Most kids get a pretty good first impression of him. He's cute, he's soft, he gives us candy. I mean, what's not to like? But not everyone has a good first impression of the Easter Bunny. This little boy clearly thinks that the Easter Bunny is going to eat his baby sister. This group of kids is so afraid of him that they are in a fight to push one kid forward as tribute. And this little girl's expression perfectly says what all of these kids are totally thinking. The Easter Bunny is not a good person. And while he looks cute and friendly in all of these pictures, it only takes one picture like this to think that maybe these kids have a point. The thing about first impressions is that we tend to make moral judgments that stick to people based on the smallest things. For example, I mean, let's, let's bring this home. How would you feel if someone wearing a red Make America Great Again hat came in and sat down next to you? Or what if it was someone wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt? How would you feel about Compass if we had a rainbow sticker on one of our front doors? Or how would you feel about us if we had a sticker that said, we believe in the Second Amendment right to bear arms? What if we had that sticker on one of our front doors? I know this, you had a gut reaction instantly when I described each of those things, whether good or bad. And that gut feeling is the power of our moral judgment. And whether you think those things are good or bad, that can instantly adjust your belief about a person or a group. It can change your feeling about whether they are good or bad. And these moral judgments of people are so strong because they're they're connected to our deeply held beliefs about right and wrong, which means that they're often regularly connected to our religious and spiritual beliefs. Our religious beliefs cause us to judge whether other people are right or wrong, good or bad. And I bring all of this up because today, we are gonna look at a time when Jesus was under that same microscope when people's religious values caused them to make a critical judgment of him. And the question I wanna ask today is this, how can we know if our moral judgments of people are right? Now, before we get too far, I just need to acknowledge the fact that it's Easter Sunday. And and even though it's Easter, we're not gonna be having a typical Easter message. And the reason is because since last year, we have been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And, And when we made the decision to do that, we committed to following that plan even when holidays come. So like last year on Easter, we talked about persecution. That was fun. 
And this year, on Easter, we're gonna talk about demons. Don't blame me, I didn't write the Gospel of Matthew, I'm just following it. But today we're gonna find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, and it says this. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. So, as we've navigated our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we find in Matthew 8 and 9 that there is this collection of nine miracles that Jesus performed. And we've been talking about these miracles over the last several months, particularly as we've been working our way through our message series entitled Miracles. And what we've been doing is looking beyond the miracle to see what we can understand about Jesus and the kingdom that he came to set up. And here, in this story, we see another supernatural healing. A mute man is brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him, and the crowds were amazed. But it's important for us to look at the fact that the people thought that this man was demon-possessed. See, in the ancient world, particularly in the, the Mediterranean world of the New Testament, belief in demons and demon possession was almost universal. Everyone believed in demons and possession. It wasn't just a Jewish or Christian belief. It was common across almost all religions. And there was also this common belief that demons were the cause of most untreatable permanent disabilities. So if you were born crippled or deaf or mute, or if you had seizures, you were possessed by a demon. Now, whether you take Matthew at his word that this was an actual demon in the story or that it was just a physical ailment, the belief that Jesus had just cast out a demon left a big impression on the people who saw it. And just like any first impression, it caused some of those people to make a moral judgment about Jesus. Look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, well, he can cast out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. Now, that argument from the Pharisees that Jesus cast out demons because he had the power of demons, it, it seems like a stretch to me a little bit. Jesus can only cast out demons because he gets his power from demons. I mean, it's like saying that anytime there's a fire, that a firefighter must have started it because he wanted to be the hero by putting it out. And, and this statement they make is especially ironic when you know that the Pharisees were actually known for having exorcists of their own and casting out demons on their own. So when the Pharisees cast out demons, it's good. But when Jesus casts out demons, it's demonic. I mean, how do they even get there? Well, this is interesting. A lot of people actually thought that Jesus was demon-possessed over the course of his ministry. I mean, here are just a few examples. In Mark 3.22, said, But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. In John 7.20, it says that the crowd replied, You're demon-possessed. And then John again says in John 8, 48, says the people retorted, you Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? A lot of people thought that Jesus was demon possessed. And why? I mean, why did they think that Jesus was demon possessed? Well, it wasn't just physical illness. Any sort of mental illness was also thought then to be caused by demons. So anytime someone said anything that seemed crazy or anything, they said anything that violated cultural or social norms or ways of thinking, people assumed that those crazy ideas and thoughts were caused by demons. Look at John 10, 19 through 21. 
talking about Jesus, when he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. So this we can see the people were responding to something that Jesus had said. And what did he say? Jesus had just said that he had the authority and power to lay down his life and take it up again. And the people hearing this were like, okay, dude's crazy. He's out of mind. It's got to be a demon. But this is also where it gets interesting. See, the Pharisees, they already thought Jesus was demonic because of the crazy things that he said and, and the ways in which his teaching contradicted their religious practices. So because of what he said, I mean, he was demon-possessed, crazy. But what do you do when the person who is working with demons actually casts a demon out of someone else? I mean, wouldn't that be evidence that they were wrong about him? Wouldn't the fact that Jesus helped someone who was suffering from demonic influence, wouldn't that prove that Jesus wasn't under demonic influence? Now, this is where we, you know, modern people would say clearly the Pharisees, they were superstitious and they were illogical. I mean, if, if we were there in that situation, our modern logical way of thinking would see the evidence and we would change our belief about Jesus. But would we? Check this out. In 1954, a suburban housewife in Oak Park, Illinois, she caused a small stir by announcing that aliens from the planet Clarion had told her the world was coming to an end on December 21st, 1954. And people heard her message and believed it and started following her. And because the aliens told them that December 21st would be the date of the end of everything, they all gathered together to experience the, the apocalypse together. Now, not to spoil the suspense, but nothing happened. I mean, there was no apocalypse, no aliens, and the world didn't end. And when their prophecy failed, the group struggled to explain it. What happened? And you would think that at this point, the evidence would prove to this group who called themselves the seekers, that the evidence would prove to them that their beliefs were wrong. But that's not what happened. In fact, the opposite happened. They rationalized it by saying that because they had showed so much faith and spread so much light by sitting together all night long, and because of that, God saved the world from destruction. So on December 21st, their belief was based on the fact that the world would be destroyed. But on December 22nd, their belief was based on the fact that the world wasn't destroyed. They twisted the proof that they were wrong into the proof that they were right. Now, this is a psychological phenomenon called belief persistence. It's a human tendency to hold on to things we believe to be true, even when all of the evidence is to the contrary. The Pharisees believed Jesus was demon-possessed because of what he taught about himself and the kingdom of God and the things he said. And when Jesus cast out a demon and the evidence showed he wasn't demon-possessed, they still found a way to persist in their belief that he was bad and evil and demonic. Which brings us full circle back around to the question we asked at the very beginning. How can we know if our moral judgments about people are right? The Pharisees got it wrong about Jesus. And, and how are we any different from them? Especially when we may have belief perseverance of our own that's causing us to misjudge people. Well, one time when Jesus was accused of being demon-possessed, he actually responded 
And in his response, he gives us a new template by which to measure things. And this is what happened in Matthew 12, 33. Jesus said, when he was accused of being demon-possessed, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. For Jesus, the measure of a person and the measure of how God is working in their life is the fruit they produce. The Pharisees judged him based on impressions that were rooted in their culture and in their religious practices. But Jesus said, it's not the adherence to religious rules that you will be measured by. It's the fruit of your life. So what is the fruit we're looking for? Well, I'm super glad you asked because Paul actually gives us a list of the good and bad fruit that grows in our lives when we are aligned with what God is doing and when we aren't. And I'm using the message translation here because I like how it expounds on things and I like the language it uses. So check this out in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. This is the fruit of when we follow our sinful nature. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper. An impotence to love or be loved. Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. These are the things that develop in our lives when we follow, follow our own selfish desires. And does any of that sound or feel familiar? I mean, this list all of a sudden feels very modern, doesn't it? Not, not some list of ancient vices, but a list of very current qualities in our culture, even in our religious culture. But now look at the list of good fruit in the message translation. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Thing like, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things. A sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. This, fruit of the Spirit, this is the evidence of God's work in a person's life. All the other things that we use to judge the faith of others are, are meaningless. No matter how hard we want to believe in them. I mean, the Pharisees, they couldn't look past their biases and beliefs to see who Jesus really was. Can you? Can you look, be look beyond a MAGA hat to see the fruit of the Spirit there? Can you look past a Black Lives Matter shirt to see Jesus fully at work in someone's life? I mean, here's another way to look at it. What does it mean to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in the life of someone who has a rainbow bumper sticker? Or to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in the life of someone with a gun rights bumper sticker? My point is this, that all of the things that we use to measure someone's rightness or wrongness, their goodness or badness, are not the things God uses. Political alignment, fashion style, race, sexual orientation, disability, 
These are cultural measurements. None of these things are limiters of God's ability to bear fruit in the life of a person who is submitted to him. So wrapping up, I'd like you to ask yourself two questions. First, have I judged someone's faith based on things other than the fruit of the Spirit? Have I decided that because someone's political persuasion or their life choices or their their doctrinal differences, that because of those things, they're outside of the kingdom of God in spite of the fact that their lives are actually bearing fruit of the Spirit? Like the Pharisees, have I persisted in my beliefs that people are outside of God's kingdom and and even worked to keep them outside of God's kingdom in spite of evidence to the contrary? Second question is this. Does my life bear the fruit of the Spirit? You may read your Bible and pray every day. You may go to church every Sunday and only listen to Christian music. But does your life have the evidence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are you known for your affection for others, for your compassion, and for your conviction in the basic God-given worth and dignity of all people? Are you known for not forcing your way and for having an exuberance about life? Those are the natural byproducts of closeness with God, not religious observance. See, the Pharisees devalued the work of Jesus because they believed something about him that wasn't true. Don't devalue the work of Jesus in other people's lives for the same reason. The Pharisees also overestimated God's work in their own lives because they thought they followed the religious rules well enough. But in spite of their religious observance, they didn't bear any fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit, it is the new life that Jesus wants to raise us into, that we would die to what our old life produces and be raised to new life in Him, with new lives that bear the fruit that comes from following Him. And it's fruit that doesn't just bring good things into our lives, But it spreads good things into the lives of others. His church, his people, we will bear the fruit of his life. And my prayer is this, is that may our lives look less like the first list and more like the second list as we follow him. May we measure the worth of someone's faith by the fruit of their lives, not the externals, not the things that we've been taught to believe make a person good or bad, right or wrong. But may we measure others and may we measure ourselves based on Jesus' list of the fruit that is born in the life of people who are submitted to him. And can I just tell you that living a life following Jesus, submitted to him, bearing that fruit of the Spirit is the best life that you could ever live. And I encourage you to make the decision to say yes to Jesus, to following him today. I will see you next week for the last in our Miracles message series. See you then. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. 